Hello and welcome to this ENT Expert Opinion podcast. Today I'm talking with Associate Professor Glenn Croxon. After obtaining his fellowship in otolaryngology, head and neck surgery from the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, he spent 12 months in Cambridge, England with David Moffat as a fellow in otology and skull-based surgery. He obtained a further fellowship with Mark May in Pittsburgh. He has a special interest in ear surgery and facial nerve disorders. He has presented and published nationally and internationally on facial nerve disorders, ear surgery and dizziness. He is currently a clinical associate professor at the University of Sydney and has an active ongoing role in the training and mentorship of residents and registrars. Hi Prof, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. So today we're going to be talking about facial nerve disorders and to begin with, how do you go about classifying facial nerve disorders? I think the best way of classifying it is uh, disorder-based. The way that I classify it is to uh, think about the most common disorder and going through to the least common disorders. And that's clinically useful in seeing patients with facial nerve disorders. The most common disorder of the facial nerve uh, is Bell's palsy, which takes up about 50% of all of the patients who will present to you with a lower motor neuron facial nerve disorder. After that, the second most common disorder is uh, trauma, which in turn can be subdivided into accidental trauma, usually associated with skull-based fractures, uh, surgically iatrogenic trauma, uh, which uh, can be either intratemporal or extratemporal, such as in parotid tumours, and surgically unavoidable trauma. That is where you need to actually move the facial nerve in order to get to a pathology, such as removing an acoustic neuroma or alternatively a deep lobe of parotid tumour. The third most common cause of facial nerve disorder is herpes zoster oticus, which probably represents about 10 or 12% of patients you'll see with lower motor neuron facial nerve disorders. Following that, both infection and uh, tumours represent between 4 and 5% each, respectively, of the patients you'll see. With infection, infection can be further subdivided into acute infections, such as acute otitis media in childhood, resulting in a facial nerve palsy, or chronic infections such as cholesteatoma, causing erosion of the temporal bone. After that, uh, the causes of lower motor neuron facial nerve disorder become pretty much fine print and include things such as uh, Melkerson-Rosenthal syndrome or sarcoidosis. Congenital facial nerve palsies also occur and birth traumatic facial nerve, but these are fine print. So then when presented with a patient who is suffering from a facial nerve disorder, what elements in the history are important in both identifying the cause as well as to help prognosticate recovery? You know, it's again a very good question and, and uh, I think that history is incredibly important uh, when you're dealing with patients with facial nerve disorders. If I can take Bell's palsy first, the history is critical. Although it's actually said that Bell's palsy is a diagnosis of exclusion, the symptoms can give away uh, the diagnosis in just taking a history. Crucial in the history is um, determining whether the patient has had pain in or around the ear or into the root of the neck on the ipsilateral side. About two-thirds of all patients with Bell's palsy will have this, and in fact pain is a reassuring symptom that it is Bell's palsy or zoster rather than a more um, sinister cause. 
The other symptom that you should try and elicit is dyscusia, a change of taste on the ipsilateral side of the tongue, typically a corda tympani type of symptom. The patient may also volunteer the face that the sensation of the face has changed on the ipsilateral side. They often liken it to a sensation of a dental block. Sometimes you actually have to ask for this symptom. Other symptoms such as hyperacusis are also of interest and of value when trying to make a diagnosis. It's the patients who present as Bell's palsy but with no pain that you need to worry about because those, those are the ones that may in fact either have a tumour or alternatively um, a, uh, another more sinister cause of uh, a facial nerve disorder. With trauma, again, history is really important. The most common traumatic cause of facial nerve palsy that you'll see are the accidental uh, facial nerve palsies that are associated with skull-based fracture. Now, skull-based fracture with the history mainly comes in two different forms. The first is a head trauma where there is a lucid patient who is able to tell you that there has been a period of normal facial function followed then by a gradual deterioration in their facial function. Those patients have a delayed traumatic cause of facial nerve disorder and almost always require no intervention. They will get better by themselves. Probably the more common situation in trauma is where there has been a significant head injury with a skull-based fracture, and these are often associated with a period of loss of consciousness. In those patients, you are commonly presented with a patient who has awoken after a period of unconsciousness in intensive care with a lower motor neurone facial nerve palsy. There is no knowing whether it was delayed, and you must assume that it was immediate and complete at onset. Those are the patients who may require further investigation and perhaps even surgical exploration. So having uh, taken your, uh, your comprehensive history in relation to the events surrounding the palsy and the nature of the palsy, what does your physical exam include and what is the role of a grading system and, and what do you use in clinical practice? Again, uh, a, uh, a fairly comprehensive question. Uh, the physical examination includes an assessment, first of all, of the patient's tone in their face. Second is the actual evidence of clinical movement. And the third is uh, evoking synkinesis, whether it's present or not. The tone uh, is important and will give you an idea of whether you're dealing with an acute or partially recovered facial nerve disorder. You should be looking for evidence of hypertonia or hypotonia in each of the segments of the face, including the upper third, middle third and lower third. Regarding movement, each of the individual parts of the face should be examined, including the forehead, the eye, middle third of face, the depressor function of the mouth, and the platysma or cervical branch of the facial nerve. And as far as synkinesis goes, you can evoke this by having the patient pout and looking at their eye, or alternatively asking them to close their eyes and looking at the corner of the mouth. Synkinesis is evidence of abnormal regeneration after significant degeneration and is a sign of partial or incomplete recovery. 
When you come to talking about grading systems, there are many grading systems that have been proposed over the years, and virtually every author who has written on facial nerve disorders has a grading system after their name. The internationally accepted grading system is the House Brackman grading system, and although it is not perfect, it is a language that we can discuss facial nerve function with internationally. It's a simple system and was originally described as an end-stage or chronic grading system uh, that includes not only an assessment of the patient's tone, uh, but also the individual movements of the branches of the facial nerve, as well as the uh, evidence of synkinesis. It is the common language that we all speak. More recently, the House-Brackman system has been also um, adopted for the assessment of acute systems or acute facial nerve disorders. It's less useful in this role in that in acute, uh, in acute disorders, there is no synkinesis, which is an essential part of the original House-Brackman grading system. Despite this, it's been fairly widely internationally adopted and is also used as an acute grading system to state the function of the face in the acute situation. At this point, uh, having completed your uh, history and physical exam, is, is there or are there any investigations that you would routinely perform for any facial nerve disorder? Yes, I think that, uh, that audiometry uh, is probably one of the most essential uh, investigations to do. It is essential that the audiogram is normal and equal symmetrically in patients with Bell's palsy. If there is an asymmetrical hearing loss in a patient that you believe has Bell's palsy, then your diagnosis automatically becomes suspect. And it's important then to proceed, usually with MRI and CT scan, to exclude a facial nerve neuroma or some other uh, abnormality which may involve the, the cochlear nerve as well as the facial nerve. Typically, disorders of the cerebellar pontine angle or the internal auditory canal. So audi audiometry is important. Audiometry obviously is important for traumatic causes of facial nerve disorder as well because it will tell you about the integrity of the acicular chain or it may tell you about the integrity of the uh, cochlea and labyrinth if the uh, trauma or fracture has actually involved the, uh, the inner ear. As such, it is a guiding tool as to whether uh, we... Uh, investigate or uh, explore the facial nerve. For example, if the uh, facial nerve were to be seriously involved in a fracture and the hearing was normal, uh, we would try and preserve the hearing by exploring the facial nerve through the middle cranial fossa and transmastoid route. If, however, the hearing was lost in association with the fracture, then a translabyrinthine exploration of the facial nerve could be done to um, explore and to uh, reanimate the facial nerve, in other words, to reconstruct its configuration. Other investigations, what is the role of topognostic testing, um, for example, Shermer's testing, acoustic reflex, and so on? Um, the role is largely, largely historic, and uh, nowadays it would be unusual in a normal clinical practice to perform topognostic testing. There's a reason for that, Niall, and that is that the common causes 
of facial nerve disorder, that is Bell's palsy, trauma and zoster, all affect the facial nerve in a non-discrete way. For example, in Bell's palsy, uh, there is a patchy demyelination of the facial nerve, although it's mainly localised at the meatal foramen. In zoster, once again, it's a patchy demyelination. And in trauma, we now know that common neutered fractures can pick off the individual branches of the facial nerve or the trunk in various positions. Therefore, topognostic testing is of little value and has largely been replaced by high-resolution CT scan and MRI. What about neurophysiological testing? Neurophysiological testing is a uh, is a uh, um, a more problematic and uh, difficult investigation. The main reason that it's become uh, problematic, problematic is mainly because of nomenclature, with ENOG being proffered as the major test uh, for ear, nose and throat surgeons to do in facial nerve disorders. The truth of it is that uh, ENOG is part of a suite of electrophysiological tests that are usually done in any neuromuscular system to try and uh, estimate what the motor unit is doing. That is, whether the brain is in connection with the muscle through a nerve which is or is not functioning. ENOG uh, in, in connection with or conjunction with EMG, electromyography, done usually with a needle electrode, can be very valuable in understanding what the motor unit action potentials are doing, whether they are preserved, whether they are diminished, or whether they are indeed uh, absent. It's an important test in prognosticating in patients with Bell's palsy. It's an important test in trying to determine uh, whether you're going to surgically intervene in trauma. It's an important test in trying to determine the prognosis for patients with zoster. The problem is uh, that the terminology has been confused and one should think about electrophysiological tests as part of a suite of investigations which are simply used to test the integrity of the nerve connecting the brain to the muscle. In clinical practice, uh, when do you order it? You order it uh, in a situation where there is no clinically obvious movement in the face. If the patient has got a partial palsy and you can demonstrate function, there is no indication for electrophysiological testing. Electrophysiological testing is most valuable when you can demonstrate the persistence of a stimulatable nerve in the presence of a complete lower motor neurofacial nerve palsy. That will tell you that there is predominantly a neuropraxic or nerve conduction blockage that it's going to get better by itself usually in days to weeks. Whereas complete degeneration, as demonstrated by electrophysiology, will tell you that the patient is going to have a period of complete paralysis, usually weeks to months, followed then by an incomplete regeneration of their facial nerve complicated by synkinesis. The latter part of this interview, I really just wanted to touch on the top three most common conditions and uh, I guess in a way try and crystallise how we assess and manage them in clinical practice for those of us out there uh, who see this on occasion. To begin with, with idiopathic paralysis or Bell's palsy, we've already touched 
uh, upon the the history and the mm. physical exam components. Mm. Um, outside of the audiogram, are there any routine investigations that you would perform? In somebody uh, who I think has Bell's palsy with a supportive history with the elements that we've talked about, and that is pain, discusia, and change of sensation of their face, then after an audiogram has reassured me that there is no abnormality, I would then do no further investigations. I think that uh, performing a CT scan is usually of no value at all, and an MRI scan with contrast, gadolinium, will only show you that there's enhancement in the region of the meatal foramen, and that is going to cause you and the patient concern and will condemn the patient to a second scan some 6 to 12 months later to exclude a facial nerve neuroma. So in patients with Bell's palsy, I go no further than an audiogram. I don't perform any routine bloods. I don't perform a teeter looking for herpes zoster or herpes simplex teeters because from a practical point of view, it doesn't add anything to the management. As far as uh, treatment for Bell's palsy goes, um, there is now, I think, good evidence uh, with the Scottish study by Sullivan and the European study more recently, both of which have independently shown that prednisone is of value in the management of this condition. It's widely believed that the inflammatory condition of Bell's palsy lasts for 10 to 14 days. So from the period of time when you see the patient through to historical day 14, I would recommend a milligram of per kilogram of prednisone and then stop it abruptly or alternatively taper it down depending on the period of time that you've used it for. It would seem that there's no evidence that acyclovir in Bell's palsy adds anything to the outcome and probably at this stage uh, one should consider that uh, there is no logical evidence-based reason to, uh, to continue it. The role of surgery uh, remains controversial, but if you were look at the practitioners who are decompressing facial nerves worldwide, uh, there is a, indeed a very small number. The problem with surgically decompression, decompressing patients uh, with Bell's palsy, is that it requires uh, a middle cranial fossa operation to approach the labyrinthine pores of the facial nerve. Now, even in expert hands, this is not without complications and is a major uh, surgical intrusion to somebody who at worst is going to get a house grade 3 or 4 recovery and at best may actually go on to a house grade 1 or 2 independently of how you select the patients you want to operate on. Moving on to trauma, as you've already alluded to, dividing into accidental, iatrogenic and surgically unavoidable, and if we restrict our discussion purely to accidental for the purpose of this discussion, hmm. history and exam again we've covered, what investigations do you perform on top of what we've discussed? Um, these patients uh, require uh, a clinical assessment of their face, they require a high-resolution CT scan uh, to look at the uh, nature of the fracture and its uh, proximity to the facial nerve. Uh, they also require an audiogram and finally electrophysiological studies. In essence, uh, the decision paradigm that we use is that those patients who have complete facial nerve palsy 
which is of immediate onset or indeterminate onset, uh, who have a clinically complete facial nerve palsy and a fracture line which transgresses the facial nerve with or without comminution of the segments of their facial nerve and electrophysiological complete degeneration are patients that we believe should probably have their facial nerve explored. The corollary of that is if there is any evidence of clinical facial function or if there is uh, a CT scan with a fracture not transgressing the facial nerve or if there is EMG showing that there still remains some connection between the brain and the muscles peripherally, those are contraindications to surgically explore the facial nerve. You should understand that the exploration of the facial nerve is not to prevent degeneration of the facial nerve, but rather it is to actually promote regeneration by simply putting the ends of the traumatized facial nerve together or alternative, removing spicules of bone uh, which may have penetrated uh, the facial nerve. Finally, on to uh, herpes zoster. How common is a viral prodrome and are there any other key symptoms outside of what we've discussed that help one make the diagnosis? Yeah, herpes zoster aticus is a, uh, is a devastating disorder. Um, it uh, occurs in uh, people uh, usually in their sixth and seventh and eighth decade and uh, can be a catastrophic disorder. Um, not only is it associated with uh, facial nerve palsy, but it can commonly be associated with cochlear-vestibular disturbance, which can make a previously functional elderly person basically uh, no longer independent and functional. 70% of patients who get herpes osteoroticus get a bad outcome, that is, a house grade 3 recovery uh, or worse. The key to this disorder uh, is the pain that these people suffer. Generally speaking, our figures and studies have suggested that pain is the first in the way of symptoms, then followed commonly by facial nerve disorder, then followed by vesicles. That is by far the most common presentation in our, um, in our series. A prodrome of upper respiratory tract infection uh, may or may not be uh, present, just as in Bell's palsy, a prodrome of upper respiratory tract infection may or may not be present. But generally speaking, it's the severity of pain association with the completeness of the facial nerve palsy, with the evolution of vesicles, which gives you the uh, uh, which gives you the actual um, diagnosis. These people are uh, treated uh, rather empirically. Uh, with high-dose steroids and uh, acyclovir in the hope that it may be helpful. But there is little in the way of good evidence uh, that suggests that, it's, uh, that it does, actually does any, any good. Obviously, there's a relatively small number of these people and it doesn't really lead itself to a randomised controlled study. Hopefully, there'll be a multiple centre study in the future that may uh, allow us a more objective and scientific approach but mainly it's supportive, especially those people who are incapacitated by vertigo and the treatment uh, with steroids and acyclovir, mainly on a pragmatic view. Well, thanks, Prof. It's been a stimulating discussion on facial nerve disorders. Um, the final part of this is the, is the final word. That's an opportunity for you to either uh, mention something we haven't discussed 
or put further emphasis on something we have as a, as a key element for someone listening to take away? Yes. I think, uh, Niall, the most important thing is to, uh, is to take a, a, a good history looking for symptoms which would support a diagnosis of Bell's palsy. When we look at the patients who have had a misdiagnosis, it's commonly those people who have had the onset of facial nerve palsy without the pain, without the discusia, without the change of symptomatology. They're the ones who have facial nerve neuromas or tumours in their parotid, and those are the ones who immediately should be looked upon with suspicion when you take your history. The history is crucial. The second most important thing is the audiometry. Thanks very much, Prof. This is uh, another of the ENT Expert Opinion podcasts. You can find more of them at entexpertopinion.com or email us at entexpertopinion at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you very much, Niall.